My name is Larry Eskridge, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I don't see a lot of movies. I've just never been that interested in going to the theater or even watching movies at home. So my wife was very surprised on a Friday night a couple months ago when I suggested that we go see Jesus Revolution at the theater. I was vaguely familiar with the Jesus People movement back in the late 60s and early 70s, and I had read some good reviews of the film, so I thought it might be worth checking out. After watching it, I definitely wanted to learn more. Was that a revival that took place? What started it? Who were the main players involved? And were there any lasting effects, or did the Jesus movement just fade off? Well, Larry Eskridge wrote God's Forever Family, The Jesus People Movement in America, and I believe it is the definitive account on the Jesus People Movement in the late 60s and 70s. I got to ask him all the questions I'd been wondering about. I bet you're going to enjoy this conversation. Larry Askridge, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Hey, thanks, Keith. Good to be with you. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to talk with you about your book, God's Forever Family. I read it a couple times, really enjoyed it. Let's start with this. Most people are probably somewhat familiar with the fact that in April of 1966, Time Magazine had a cover in which they asked a question, is God dead? And it was kind of a controversial magazine cover. They were obviously making a point about faith, about culture, about morality back in 1966. But what most people don't know is that in 1971, Time Magazine ran a different cover, this time talking about the Jesus Revolution. So in five years, we went from Is God Dead to the Jesus Revolution. What happened? I mean, you've written a great book on it, but how do you explain what happened? Well, it was a big surprise for most people. I mean, the 1966 Is God Dead issue stemmed from, in some ways, kind of an obscure theological, philosophical discussion that had been brought forward by a couple of theologians. So in terms of the mainstream, not so, you know, in touch with what was going on. But still, the 1971 issue with the Jesus people on the cover was quite a surprise, simply because the way the trajectory of the younger generation had been looking for a few years prior to that, the fact that all of a sudden you had this Jesus movement within the ranks of the young, and particularly coming from the counterculture amongst the hippies and the druggies, that was a shock to a lot of people. And it took a lot of people by surprise. And I made a mention in my book that, you know, when the movement's cultural time has come, when it ends up on the cover of Time magazine back in the day. It's really true. And it wasn't the only magazine. I believe Look Magazine also had a big article oh, on yeah. it. And so it was a movement that the national news magazines had to kind of pay attention to. Is it fair to say that there was a revival that happened then? Well, you know, I wear, whether I'm wearing my historian hat or my Christian hat, certainly a lot of people interpreted it as a revival. And certainly at that time, it looked like something unprecedented was occurring. And it certainly had a huge impact on the American church. It had a big impact on, I would argue, the trajectory of American youth at the time. And in some ways, I think it even derailed some of the momentum of the counterculture in terms of this kind of impacts and inroads it was making on the larger youth population. Yeah. Well, I mean, revival is being talked about recently because of the Asbury mm -hmm. revival that sure. happened in early 
2023. And I want to get back to that before we finish our conversation. But let's stay right now on what happened. The way your book lays it out, one way of saying it is that it began in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, or at least that was the center of where this began. Tell us, what is Haight-Ashbury and why was it important? What was going on there? How did all this unfold? Okay, well, San Francisco was the kind of bohemian, small b, beatnik center for kind of an avant-garde, mostly youthful population going back into the 1950s. It had this reputation as a trendy, free spirit type of a city. And as the culture began to evolve into the 60s, beatnik became hippie eventually. And by late 66, it had become kind of the center for a lot of people who were looking to express themselves freely and just kind of get away from what a lot of people thought of as a straight-jacketed, uptight, conservative American middle-class mindset. So San Francisco became the place. And in early 1967, the residents of the Haight-Ashbury community, neighborhood of San Francisco, decided that they were ready to launch a summer of love where new things were happening. (laughs) There was going to be new enlightenment for mankind, you know, peace, love, all the good stuff. And San Francisco would be kind of the epicenter of that. Now, in a lot of ways, the whole thing was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the local citizenry, the mayor and the police took them very seriously. And also, the news got out to a lot of restless, dissatisfied youth across the country, and they began looking to San Francisco as the place to be. And so they began flocking to Haight-Ashbury, thousands of kids, many of them whom you would describe as runaways, headed to Haight-Ashbury, and this whole scene emerged, you know, obviously tied to resentment against kind of the sexual restrictions, you know, that they perceived in American culture, the hangups, you know, dissatisfied with the direction of the American government. And then also the big player in this whole thing was the idea that pharmaceutical enlightenment was obtainable through (laughs) the ingestion of various substances, mushrooms, marijuana, and particularly LSD. And at this point, I mean, it was taken seriously by people that this was a route to spiritual enlightenment to shake free of all the hangups of American society. It sounds odd to hear that, you know, some sort of spiritual revival would come out of the scene that you're describing. Hate Ashbury, if I understand it right, and I've only been to San Francisco once, I never went to this place. It's just an intersection of two streets. And yet that became kind of the neighborhood that then took on this persona of kind of drugs, sex, music, and I guess a hippie. I'm not even sure what a hippie is, how you define it. I'm just assuming this is kind of a long-haired, free-spirited type. So they're all gathering there. And a lot of movement started out of Haight-Ashbury, right? Not just the Jesus people movement, but weren't there other things that came out of that culture? Yeah, there were you know all sorts of religious movements that first got their start there, or that really began to take off by dint of their connections into Haight-Ashbury. You think, for instance, of the Hare Krishna movement, you know, Eastern religions were big, astrology and the occult were of big interest to many of the people there. You know, so basically there's a general rejection of Western society and Western religion and philosophy and this sort of idea that they had to get beyond that stuff. So it was the last place that you would expect for evangelical Christian revival movement and evangelistic effort to take root and begin to have success. This is where we kind of start getting into people who were significant in this movement. And one of the people that I want to talk about throughout our conversation is a guy named Lonnie Frisbee. He was instrumental, used by God in this movement. And he becomes a Christian in kind of a unique way and is part of the Haight-Ashbury community. So can you tell us a little bit about Lonnie Frisbee, how he started in the faith and the people he connected with there? Well, Lonnie Frisbee was a teenager in Southern California, and he had begun experimenting with drugs and LSD. And during one of his uh, pilgrimages out into the desert on an LSD trip, he had an experience, what he described as a revelation, where God showed him a vision and explained to him, you know, the truths about salvation and 
also that he would play a role therein. Now, all of that didn't click necessarily right away. He ended up in San Francisco, went up north, and began hanging out in Haight-Ashbury, and he was just part of that scene there. But he was, while still ingesting drugs, he was talking about Jesus to people. And there he met a group of older, I guess you would call them proto-hippie Christians, who really had their roots back towards the beatnik days. But they had been converted through the auspices of a Baptist church over in Marin County. And they ran into Frisbee and said, well, this guy is, you know, talking some crazy stuff and is talking about Jesus and the Christ consciousness and flying saucers. And they said, let's see if we can straighten him out. So they sort of took him under their wing, sobered him up and, you know, began to try to just teach some biblical basics to him and brought him into their group. Now, their group was a group centered around a mini commune and, for lack of a better word, a drop-in center in Haight-Ashbury called The Living Room. And some folks there, particularly a guy named Ted Wise and some other folks and their wives were kind of the center of this whole thing. And they brought Lonnie Frisbee into that and began to sort of just try to straighten up his theology a little bit and get him involved. And from the very beginning, it sounds like there was this emphasis on communal living. Right. Why is that? I mean, it seems weird to us to think that you're all going to live like in some dormitory together or that kind of thing. Was that just the cultural norm there in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the late 60s? Or was this something unique to Christians? Well, the communal thing had gained some currency amongst the hip population. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of things feeding into that social views, views on the economy and what community really meant. So it was sort of natural that young Christians moving into that ethos would begin to think that, well, okay, this makes sense. But what really made it come alive to them was they read the book of Acts. And they read in Acts chapter 2 the sections about where they lived together and had all things in common. So (laughs) they decided, well, aha! (laughs) <laughs> there was this mindset present amongst these folks that was very open to what they read in the Bible, and they took it seriously. And so they thought it only natural. They looked around at the church folks that they knew and wondered, well, what's the story? You know, why aren't they doing this? Because we're supposed to be Christians and disciples, and we have this example in the book of Acts. Why aren't we doing it? So they naturally took to it, and it became in a lot of ways, a kind of a practical strategy for looking after each other and discipling young converts, because, you know, a lot of these folks were coming out of the drug culture, had been into all sorts of behaviors, which, you know, most middle-class conservative Christians didn't think were a great idea, you know, the whole free love concept and dropping LSD and that sort of thing. That didn't play in most congregations. So the communal living was both a nod to the counterculture and also kind of a practical survival strategy for these folks to be able to live, to feed people, to give them a place to live. Because as I mentioned, Haight-Ashbury was a place where thousands of people were sleeping on the streets at night during this summer of love and for a couple of years thereafter, a youth homeless population. So this was a practical way to kind of get around that, where they could disciple people, teach them basic biblical knowledge, and, you know, try to evangelize other folks as well. So here we have this summer of love in Haight-Ashbury, drugs, people coming from all over the country, young people coming from all over the country, hanging out together, talking about big ideas. These movements come out of Haight-Ashbury. And here we have that God intervenes. I don't want to put too much of a Christian spin on it. I know there's probably a different way to tell this story, but from the best I can tell, God intervenes in this kid's life, high school kid, Lonnie Frisbee, who came from an abusive house, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later, and intervenes in his life so that he comes to faith in Christ, but he's still doing drugs. He's still talking about this Christ consciousness, kind of weird stuff. He hooks up with other Christians, and they're trying to straighten him out while they're also telling everybody in Haight-Ashbury about Jesus. Mm-hmm. People are responding. They're kind of coming to faith. And I guess if you're going to lay out how you would expect revival to go, 
this isn't it, right? This isn't the story that you or I would probably write. In other words, this isn't kind of the culmination of some strategic initiative by a church, right? It was right. very unexpected and maybe not something that a lot of people were comfortable with. Well, in some ways, I mean, there's kind of like a twin heroes of this whole development. I look at, you know, here at one hand, we've got Ted Wise in this living room group who meet Lonnie Frisbee and try to straighten him out. But you've also got a group of pastors who kind of take a flyer on this idea. There was one in particular fellow by the name of John McDonald, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Mill Valley, California. And he had been the one to first make contact with Ted Wise and some of these other people back in 1966. And he realized that these people could connect with the hippies and all these runaways in a way that they never could. <laughs> John McDonald, in a book in 1970 called The House of Acts, talks about how he went to hate Ashbury with Ted Wise and how he felt like he was the man on the moon walking the streets with Ted Wise amidst all this craziness, you know. And he realizes that if someone is going to be a missionary to this place, it's probably not going to be the straight Baptist pastor with the tie and the sport coat walking the streets. And it really did turn out to be the case. So he got together with some other Baptist pastors, mostly Baptist pastors, and they started a little nonprofit organization aimed at attempting to reach the hippies. And, of course, there were a lot of people who weren't very comfortable with that idea. And nonetheless, they persisted. It sounds like there were some churches, pastors, like you're saying, who had enough vision to see that God was doing something and were willing to kind of go with what happened instead of making it conform to their expectations. Hey, did you see the movie Jesus Revolution that oh, yeah. came out, I don't know, several months ago? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus Revolution told a part of this story. What did you think of the movie? All things considered, I thought it was a fairly well-done movie, you know, as far as that goes. The fact that they landed Kelsey Grammer to play Chuck Smith was a coup for them. And then they, you know, got Jonathan Rumi. When you've got Fraser Crane and Jesus as part of your movie already, <laughs> you've got to hit the jackpot in terms of audience recognition and all that. But yeah, it was pretty well done. I mean, they caught the spirit of the times to a fair extent. I think they got the relationship between Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee pretty close. Of course, there were some details in there that were a little bit Hollywooded and collapsed. And you have, you know, different things that weren't necessarily chronologically in the right order. But, you know, overall, it did a pretty fair job in presenting the times and the reactions. I don't think it's probably reasonable to expect Hollywood to get the details right. But I was curious if you thought the gist of the movie, they captured the spirit accurately. And you talk about yeah. the Jesus guy, Jonathan Rumi, right? Right. He played Lonnie Frisbee, because if you've ever seen a picture of Lonnie Frisbee, for those of you who haven't, he looks like Jesus. <laughs> a little I mean, Jesus, At yeah. least a lot of people's image of what comes to mind when you think of Jesus. And then Kelsey Grammer, you said, played Chuck Smith, and we'll get to him in just a little bit. In the movie, one of the things that it showed was that when the hippies, these Christians who were now coming into churches, that the churches had some problems receiving them. Is that accurate? Oh, I mean, huge. you have these kind of staid, older, conservative, sport coat, tie to church people, and then here come the barefoot hippies in. What was that like when those two collided? Oh, it could often be a recipe for disaster. As you can imagine, and a lot of times it just didn't happen. In Calvary Chapel, to the credit of Chuck Smith and the congregation there, it overcame some obstacles and they were able to go. Calvary Chapel was a little bit bigger of a church than how they portrayed it, and it was doing a little better you know, when the hippies arrived. Because in the movie, it acts like it's almost about to shut down. And Chuck Smith is the pastor of Calvary Chapel, which now is down in Southern California, right. in a city called Costa Mesa. Mm -hmm. Orange County. Mm -hmm. If I remember right, somehow a friend, maybe his daughter or a friend, brought Lonnie Frisbee to introduce him to Chuck Smith. And they had kind of an instant connection, right? Right. Well, his daughter and her boyfriend were the main 
conduit. Actually, in you know, the reality, they had begun bumping into some of these beach bums, street kids before that. But the Lonnie Frisbee moment is kind of the moment where it all clicks for Chuck Smith. And his wife, Kay Smith, is very important in all that because she was the one who sort of urged Chuck Smith, you know, these kids are somebody's sons and daughters, and we got to reach them for Christ. So he began to, okay, you know, sort of grudgingly give in to it. And he met Lonnie Frisbee, and he was sort of taken by this the winsome personality that Frisbee evidenced, the fact that he really seemed to be someone whose life had been changed by his encounter with Christ. So that began to win him over. Now, one of the things that the movie doesn't catch is the fact that Jonathan Rumi, I think, is in his mid to late 40s. Lonnie Frisbee was actually about 19, 20 years old at this point. So he is a kid. So imagine you're a pastor of a church and some 19, 20-year-old kid who's come from a difficult background, like I've already alluded to, who now says that he has met Jesus while doing LSD, comes from Haight-Ashbury, which had its own reputation, and now he comes to your church and says, okay, I can help you reach people in my generation. I mean, how would most pastors react to that? You'd probably say, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks, or you're a little bit crazy, or let's put you through some training regimen in order to trust you. But Chuck Smith, trusted him quickly, relatively quickly, at the urging of his wife. You tell a story, I think, in the book about how the congregation was against genes in church. Is that right? Part of the story was the fact that they were moving into a new sanctuary of a new church. They have a middling-sized church that they'd built, and they had carpet, and they had padded pews with the nice upholstery and all that. And all of a sudden, these Kids start coming <laughs> and bare feet, you know, the whole nine yards. Some of them who looked like, you know, they hadn't bathed in a bit. So the reaction was, got to have some propriety here. And on one Sunday morning, some of the congregation put up a sign that said, no bare feet allowed in the sanctuary. And Chuck Smith quickly removed the sign and called a meeting of the church board <laughs> afterward and said, listen, you know, <laughs> If we have to, we'll rip all the carpet out and the pews and we'll put up some steel folding chairs and we'll go that direction because if it's a choice between the kids and the carpet, I'm going with the kids. Oh, I love that story because we think we'd be on Chuck Smith's side, right? When we hear that story, we think, oh, I would do the same thing he did. But imagine that a bunch of homeless people started coming to our churches. I bet there'd be people who maybe they weren't worried about the carpet, but maybe they'd be worried that they weren't safe or They'd want to kind of have some extra eyes on people to make sure they weren't hurting kids or something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But he's got a heart that says the kids are more important than the people, really, more than just kids, are more important than the stuff that God has given us. And I love it. So one of the ways that this movement gained credibility is by connecting with Billy Graham. Can you tell us how that happened? Billy Graham, of course, was very interested in youth. I mean, he had started off his days as a Youth for Christ speaker. I mean, that was his background. And young people had been fairly important in the development of his ministry over the years. But Graham had some limited exposure to this youth movement that was going on. And of course, he'd been a guy who'd rarely counseled teenagers that rock and roll, not good, stay away from it, you know, uh, this sort of thing. And he was friends with Richard Nixon. So he was definitely on the other side of the cultural barriers, you know, that were in place in America at that point. But nonetheless, he was open to the idea as he began to think about this situation that maybe he needed to reach out to these folks. So he began actively investigating the hippie and youth culture. He, in a couple points, even put on a disguise and walked in student protests. Wow, I didn't know that. He went to some rock festivals and hung out with the kids and tried to talk with them, rap with the kids, as they used to say. You know, the fact that he was open to doing something like that just showed that, well, he was trying. You know, he and Ruth Graham, his wife, went and bought an armload of rock albums at one point and sat down and started listening to them just to see what's all this about, you know. What are these zany kids <laughs> up to? And he didn't become a fan, apparently, as far as we can tell. But nonetheless, it was like, what are they saying? You know, the Bob Dylans, you know, these sorts of artists, what are they saying in their music? 
That's really interesting. And then there was a parade moment, right, where he's in the parade. Was he the Grand Marshal? Was it the Rose Bowl Parade? Or I forget the details. Grand Marshal, the Rose Bowl Parade, 1971. And at the parade, there were some folks from a couple of different youth groups and a group of countercultural Christians from an outfit called the Hollywood Free Paper that were there passing out Jesus papers on the street, you know. So as Billy Graham is driving down the street, you know, in his convertible, they begin to flash the one-way symbol, which had gained currency amongst the Jesus people in Southern California, which meant one way to heaven, one way Jesus. They just pointed to the sky, and that was their kind of motto. Just, yeah. One way. Yeah, one way. Billy Graham looked at that and saw some posters and things and kind of connected the fact that, oh, this is some sort of a Jesus thing. It's a Christian thing. So he began returning the one-way symbol. And pretty soon, this became quite a thing in the audience. Now, there was some confusion that maybe the older non-hip people (laughs) thought that Graham was signaling, hey, we're number one, you know, like, uh, which had just become a thing in American society (laughs) for a couple of years. So everybody's doing it. (laughs) But it started out as these Christian kids saying one way, Jesus, you know, Billy Graham, we like you, that sort of a thing. So after the parade, he began talking to the press and talking up this Jesus people movement. And that sort of paved the way for Billy Graham at that point, had for several years there in the 60s and 70s, the most admired man in America in the Gallup poll. And when he would begin talking about something, people began to take it seriously. So from that point, suddenly about five or six weeks later, you start seeing a lot more newspaper coverage. You see magazine articles start to come out, and Billy Graham begins to talk it up in his crusade preparation and his press conferences and that sort of thing. So he was kind of a key figure in terms of the publicity and pushing the visibility of the Jesus people over the edge in a lot of ways. I want to get into some of the key players here that played a role in your book, God's Forever Family. And one of them we've already mentioned is Lonnie Frisbee. And so I just want to get a little bit more of a feel for him, specifically in a couple areas. But let's set the scene. If you want to add anything to this or correct anything, feel free. But he grew up in kind of an abusive, hard home, especially his dad was an alcoholic and was violent at some points. So that kind of shaped his early childhood. He was kind of an artist, though. I mean, he was a good kid, relatively speaking. I think it was even involved in church. But as he gets older, he drifts away from that like a lot of people do, ends up in the drug culture. And we've already kind of talked a little bit about that. Comes to Christ on an LSD trip out in this canyon by himself, goes back into Haight-Ashbury talking about Jesus and all. And in really, in some ways, a main catalyst, not the only person, but a main catalyst in this story. But he ends up with kind of an odd theology. You know, he loves this faith healer named Catherine Kuhlman. She heals and all this other stuff. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the eccentricities? Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Eccentricities. There we go. Of his theology. And what's this relationship with Catherine Kuhlman? Who is she and why is that important? Well, he, because of the nature of his conversion experience, was very in and also in touch with some exposure to Pentecostal church services and that sort of thing. He really was convinced that part of the normal Christian experience were the experience of sort of signs and wonders. Casting out demons. Casting out demons, being slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, you know, different things like that, that were manifestations of the Holy Spirit sort of randomly coming upon people and beginning to transform their lives. You know, there was one anecdote that at one point he had this deer skin that had a portrait of Jesus he'd painted on it, and he began to, you know, as part of his evangelistic efforts, would sort of toss this deer skin on top of people and say, in the name of Jesus, you're healed, or speak in tongues, or whatever. And he thought that was a normal way to do business. Now, there's the folks sort of took him aside and said, you know, maybe that's a little zany that, that you're doing something like that. He sort of backed off of that. But there were other ways that he was intent upon bringing signs and wonders into you know, the church services that he was part of. And is that before he met Catherine Kuhlman? Oh, yeah, yeah. Before Catherine Kuhlman. I mean, Catherine Kuhlman, that whole episode 
I think he was probably one of several healing evangelists that he admired. And I did think that the actress who played Catherine Kuhlman in the movie was spot on. The good representation of her. Yeah, yeah. She was a little different. <laughs> and she kind of like televangelists today, people who have healing ministries, a Benny Hinn, an Oral Roberts, a Kenneth Copeland. I'm not saying that all those are the same. Joyce Meyer to some extent, although lesser so. Was she viewed by kind of the Christian church, the establishment Christianity, as kind of a off base? Because I came across her name also in reading Johnny Erickson Todd's book, and she, of course, mm -hmm. was paralyzed as a teenager and has had a great life ministry. But she talks about going to a Catherine Kuhlman event to seek healing, you know, not yeah. long after she had had her accent that caused her to be paralyzed. And I got the impression from Johnny, well, Catherine Kuhlman was kind of a bit of a fake, like a fraud. How do we understand her best you can tell? Well, I mean, that's a toughie. I mean, it depends on where you stand, <laughs> the Pentecostal sorts of things. Certainly, there are a lot of skeptics in kind of the mainstream evangelical movement. But you know, there are also people in the, some of the Pentecostal ends of the spectrum who respected her. She had a different audience, I think, than some of the other Pentecostal guys like Oral Roberts or some of the other folks who were big at that time. It was a little more, I guess, mainstream, you might say, in the sense that she attracted a fair number of mainline Protestant people. So Lonnie Frisbee didn't discredit himself when he went to her stuff and kind of teamed up with her. He wasn't discredited by large parts of Christianity or the church. Kind of hard to say. Well, yeah, I mean, those people who would not look at Catherine Kuhlman as a positive figure would have been disturbed by that. But she was popular. <laughs> you know, the fact that Chuck Smith actually was willing to go hang out on her TV show with some of his kids from Calvary Chapel was an indicator that there was a level of acceptability there. You know, Chuck Smith, although he had a background in the International Church of the Four Square Gospel, which was Amy Semple McPherson, female evangelist back in the 20s and 30s, he had been burned by some of that and become skeptical of it. But nonetheless, he still felt that there was enough validity in Catherine Kuhlman's overall message that he could hang with her and let Lonnie Frisbee and the company be exposed to her. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Let's get to Chuck Smith now. We've said he's the pastor of Calvary Chapel that met Lonnie Frisbee and kind of accepted him and stood up for those hippie youth who are coming to his church. And I kind of love accepted him. I've heard that he was a great Bible teacher. I've never listened to him, but I've heard he was a great Bible teacher. He died a few years ago. And he launched kind of the Calvary Chapel movement, which I don't know a lot about, but it's a big network of churches with lots of people it's big on the West Coast, but I think it has spread beyond 
that at this point. Oh yeah. Now he it was like kind of almost like a father figure to Lonnie Frisbee. You know, they had a great relationship, but yet at the same time, Lonnie left Chuck. You know, he left him to go to Fort Lauderdale, and we can talk about that later. But what I want to know is, was there ever a rift between Lonnie and Chuck? And if so, what was it over? I think the movie maybe over dramatizes some of that in the sense that it kind of portrays Lonnie Frisbee as this idea that he was the ministry and that the move of God was totally centered around him. I don't think he would ever have said that. And I think a lot of people who knew him at the time that I've seen some of the conversations around the movie have said that they couldn't imagine that that was really a little bit of dramatic license. But there still was some conflict over the fact that Chuck Smith wanted to keep a lid on a lot of Frisbee's tendencies to want to emphasize speaking in tongues and signs and wonders and miracles. If that was an element of Frisbee's ministry, that was to be something done in after-service meetings, you know, in small groups, not out in public, sort of taking the Apostle Paul's instruction on those sorts of matters to heart that not something to make a big spectacle out of. And so that was a rubbing point, I would guess you would say, in terms of over the years. Uh, the comments I've seen from some of the folks was that even some of the kids knew that Lonnie, during these services, was having an impact and that they would actually, during prayer times and stuff, be holding people up because they were ready to be slain in the spirit. <laughs> they were sort of doing it to make sure that, okay, Chuck Smith won't be unhappy <laughs> with what's going on here and to try to get to work out nicely. Some of the conflict came uh, regards to his marriage to his wife, Connie, who was upset about the fact that just the time and effort Lonnie was being expected put into the ministry. And there were some conversations that Connie Frisbee's claims where Chuck Smith basically said, ministry first, marriage second. And Lonnie and his wife, Connie, they had marriage problems. They worked on them as best they could. They end up getting divorced later on. In a second, I want to go and talk about the impact that this movement had. But before we leave Lonnie Frisbee, he dies in 1993 of AIDS or complications related to AIDS. Did he contract that from a homosexual sex or did he contract that from something else? Or do we know the answer to that question? Was he gay his whole time that he was involved in this ministry? Is that something we know much about? Well, there's a lot of controversy and discussion about that. It seems that he was molested by a babysitter at one point during his youth. He tells that story in his own book, right, that he was molested several times and nobody believed him. Right, which is a very real story that's acted out, unfortunately, in so many lives. But he basically dealt with homosexual attraction. For years, there was a fact that in Haight-Ashbury, when he was rescued by the living room crew, he was living with a man at that point in Haight-Ashbury. Then he later got married to Connie Frisbee, Connie Bremer at the time. Whether there was anything going on during that period of the ministry, nobody knows for sure what was going on, I don't think. And that's fine. We don't need to pry too much into that. Right. I think my point is that people's lives are messy. We don't have these cut out cardboard heroes or heroines that do everything right and make all these good decisions that we're all messy, but God still used this messy person to do a lot of amazing, great things for God. Bonnie Frisbee was described by a lot of folks and Chuck Smith did this at his funeral, actually, as a Samson figure someone who was used by God tremendously, but who had flaws and who overcame him. He certainly had this incredible gift for evangelism. He was a great speaker, right? Very charismatic speaker, drew people's attention. Yeah, amazingly so, you know, and particularly given the fact that, as you mentioned, I think alluded to already, not well-versed in biblical scholarship, certainly, no graduate theological education or anything of that nature. But yet he could convict people of their sins and get them ready to accept Christ. There was a story told by Ted Wise 
his old associate in Haight-Ashbury, that years later, late 80s, he had invited Lonnie Frisbee up to Northern California in connection with some sort of event, probably with Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. Dr. Ray Stedman was the pastor there, very famous evangelical pastor. And this event was really viewed as kind of an evangelistic thing. Lonnie came in and gave this sermon, and Ted Wise's daughter was there, and she had known him as Uncle Lonnie back during the day when they were living in the commune and, you know, this sort of thing. And she turned to her dad and said, man, this is terrible, this sermon <laughs> that Lonnie is giving. <laughs> Ted said, well, it is what it is, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. And at the end of it, you know, he came and said, anybody who wants to come receive Christ, come forward. All over the theater that they'd rented, people were streaming forward, coming forward to <laughs> accept Christ. And, you know, of course, they're both flabbergasted at how this had happened. And she asked Lonnie later, said, well, you know, what's the story? He says, I have a gift. I can't explain it. He says, I could go up there and say, Mary had a little lamb, come accept Jesus, and the people would come. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. I mean, it shows us. God uses weak people, that God uses people yeah. who don't necessarily excel in public speaking or, you know, whatever the important gifts are considered to be. God uses ordinary people. So by 1976, this has started to fade off a little bit. The Jesus movement has lost some momentum. You mentioned that Ken Woodward writes this big article for Newsweek in 1976, and he's kind of declaring 1976 is a year of evangelical because you have the evangelical born-again Jimmy Carter facing off in the election against born-again Gerald Ford. But you say that the article never mentions the Jesus people, this Jesus movement, and it was just kind of evidence that it had begun to fade, not totally extinguished, but it wasn't prominent anymore. What is it that caused this to fade off? Are there some things you can point to that say, yeah, this is the reason that it faded off? Or is just God's spirit started doing something different? Or how would you explain it? Yeah, that's one of those moments where Christian hat, historian hat. Yeah, put on the historian hat, maybe. Yeah, from the historical side, a lot of this was the fact that these people were just maturing and growing older. They were getting married. They were starting careers, going to school. They had other things that sort of took them away from the sort of intensive full-time Jesus people thing, whether it be living in a commune and evangelizing or working in a coffee house or whatever. So the fading away really is kind of an accurate description. They became older and they became absorbed into evangelical churches and ministries all across the country. If you scratch the surface of any person who grew up as an evangelical in the 1970s, and you realize that they had connections probably with the Jesus People movement in some regard, they really did simply, a lot of folks just absorbed into local churches and became part of what was going on in those churches and ministries. Another factor was the fact that youth culture had changed during the period to where the kind of hippie model was out of vogue, and the Jesus people were really tied into the old hippie counterculture vibe and way of presenting themselves. I mean, even the fashions and that sort of thing. If you looked at people who were involved with Jesus people ministries in the mid-70s, they still looked like hippies, even as that was starting to fade. So you've got these alternative youth culture identities coming along, punk, kind of the disco popularity, heavy metal, all these things that just weren't very conducive to this hippie cultural representation. And as a result, that was a bit of a problem, too. Now, evangelical youth culture sort of you know, transmogrified over the years, and so they had elements and music and appeal to those different subsets. That became a thing. But nonetheless, the old image was gone. And there are also some problems with some abusive groups that were out there that turned off people and made people wary. The uh, abuse of groups like the Children of God and some other cultic sorts of things. There was this thing called the Shepherding Movement, which we can talk about in a minute that Lonnie Frisbee did get involved with, that was an effort to try to get people coming out of the Charismatic Movement and also the Jesus People Movement to disciple them. 
and to thoroughly ground them in the scriptures and relationships and that sort of thing. But in a lot of cases, it became very controlling and domineering and abusive. And so you have people and churches which just kind of go off the rails and implode because of that sort of hyper control of their lives. Now, that wasn't a huge thing. But probably when you look at all those factors, I think probably just the fact that the Jesus people grew up was the main reason that the movement faded. You mentioned the shepherding movement, and you have to read your book to find out more about it. But it sounded pretty weird. Like you said, people would maybe with a good intention of discipling these new believers, but it got pretty bizarre and was pretty misogynistic against women and all kinds of bizarre stuff. But I like what you said that they just grew up. It's funny to think, you know, you start getting married, you have kids, you know, you're at soccer games or whatever they did with their families, and there's not so much time to live in communes or there's not so much interest in that kind of a lifestyle anymore. So these Jesus people, they took their faith into the churches. I'm wondering what the lasting impact of the Jesus movement is. And I know this is where your book has gotten kind of good attention because a lot of people have said, well, there really wasn't any lasting impact. It just was here and it was gone and it didn't leave a mark. And I think you've done a really good job of pointing out some places where, no, this Jesus movement did leave a mark on culture, a mark on the church, a mark on broader evangelicalism. And one of them is just in music. Music was really big in this Jesus movement. How did it impact Christian music and church music and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was huge in that regard. I remember my days of doing some teaching at Wheaton College when I would teach on the 60s or give lectures on the Jesus people. I was always sort of amazed at brought up short by the fact that I would have young people, you know, this is in the early 2000s, you know, who had grown up in evangelical churches and who thought, you know, this is how church always was. You know, guys with guitars and drums, <laughs> these praise choruses. That's what evangelical churches have always been about. And that was not the way it was. Going into the 60s and 70s, you know, it was fairly staid hymns, gospel songs. And that was what you did. It was, you know, the organ and the piano that were the acceptable instruments. Occasionally, maybe you would have a brass quartet, you know, come in and do a special performance, something like that. But that was the norm. And for most of the evangelical population, rock and roll and those upbeat sorts of instruments and songs were very questionable at best and demonic at worst in terms of how they looked at them. And the youth coming up during that period, of course, had other ideas about that. And the Jesus people in particular just absorbed the music of their pure culture. So guitars and rock bands and that sort of instrumentation just became naturally what they did. The folk idioms, the pop idioms, the rock and roll idioms, they absorbed all those musical styles and utilized them. So it was just so huge that I talk about the fact that any Jesus people outfit had music as a major constituency of what they were doing, whether it was somebody just plunking on a guitar at a Bible study to lead a few choruses or that sort of thing. Or weekend, you know, you'd have a band in at your coffee house to have concerts and to invite your friends to, to have an evangelistic event, you know, come hear this band we've got here. It's a band called Mephibosheth, you know, <laughs> and it's going to be coming here to our coffee house. Let's go hear these guys. Eastern Gate. I was part of a coffee house in the Chicago area back in the mid-70s, and we would have these bands come in, and it was usually pretty good nights. People were interested in hearing this. So it was just part of the whole atmosphere of the thing. And what begins to happen is that just an infrastructure rises around that. People want the music, so you begin to have recordings. People are selling the music concerts, then professional distribution, promotion, yada, 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 leading to the creation of Jesus music, which by the late 70s, early 80s was being called contemporary Christian music and became its whole separate genre of music. So that was a major thing. If you go to a church that has guitars and drums and that kind of thing, or if you've been to a concert maybe by Phil Wickham or some other Christian artist, or you've sat around a campfire and played Christian songs and sang or 
anything like that, that's because you've been influenced by this Jesus movement. Those are some of the outcomes that we can trace back to the Jesus movement. And I think a lot of us don't know our history. And like you said, we just assume it's always been this way. And I even remember the worship wars that happened inside of churches. Should you have that kind of service and music in their service, or should you stay with the traditional? And so churches would start having, well, the early service was traditional and the late service was contemporary. And now I think most of those have kind of died off and reconciled. But those worship wars were forced by the Jesus people coming into churches and wanting to bring their music along with them, and that conflict between the old school and new school, you might say. Outside of music, were there some other influences that we still see today from the Jesus movement? I think one of the enduring things that came out of the Jesus People movement was the way in which churches and evangelical churches in particular, how they handle youth culture. Back in the pre-1960s, the general approach was, we want to have youth evangelism. You know, we want to reach our kids and bring them up in Christian knowledge and values. But we want to basically hold the youth culture of the world at arm's length. There's too many things out there that we don't like. You know, we're suspicious of rock and roll, for instance, and of course, dancing. You know, was the major problem. It was a major problem as far as they were concerned. So that was verboten. That was forbidden. Jesus people movement has an influence in terms of saying, we've got this huge generation here that has to be reached. They've got some of these things that with the music and everything, we're going to have to maybe concede a little bit to accommodate this. And there were a number of pastors and uh, denominational officials at the time who commented that, you know, if we lose this generation, we're in big trouble. Because this is the baby boom generation, this huge slice of the American population. So they sort of budged on that. And since that whole time, rather than totally keep the musical styles and fashions and just some of the, you know, accoutrements of the popular youth culture out of the churches, there's been a general idea that instead we'll baptize them, and we'll take what's good out of them, you know, the neutral stuff. We can put up with that. Of course, we don't want to bring in, you know, truly immoral or, you know, anti-Christian sentiments behind some of these things, but let the kids have their own thing. And that's been a matter of controversy, you know, because some folks say, you know, has that helped bring a generational divide into the churches, you know, that's been there where the kids have their own separate thing? Would it be better to sort of merge them with the whole congregational? But, you know, it has become a fact of life. This is how we approach youth culture these days in our churches. So when the Jesus people move into churches, as they get older and mature and go through different stages of life, they push the church to engage culture more instead of trying to separate and build a wall. But maybe instead of building walls, they encourage them to build a bridge. Now, I'm wondering what the impact on politics is. In other words, do we go from Jesus movement into the moral majority? Are those the same people that were part of Jerry Falwell's movement back in the late 70s, early 80s? Or is that a different group of people? Or do we just not know? It's a little tough to say, because at one level, the Jesus people were apolitical. They were not a political movement at all, you know, in terms of When people got together to talk about things, uh, it really not a major concern. The real concern was, how are we going to get people to Jesus? And that was aided by another factor in all of this, was that at this particular period, the 1960s and 70s, the state of society really made a lot of folks of the opinion that the second coming was right around the corner. So political efforts were kind of a waste of time. You know, because time was short. You know, Christ is coming back anytime now. We're man in the lifeboat. We got to pick as many out of the waters as we can. And that really did seem to characterize the mindset of the Jesus people. However, as they're beginning to be absorbed into the churches, it seems like a lot of folks who adopted sort of conservative political viewpoints as they were moving into church life sort of went along with the flow. Now, this needs a lot more study to be done, you know, research to see exactly where these lines fall. 
But generally, I'm thinking that there was a tendency towards conservative politics amongst the Jesus people as they matured into the churches that they went that direction. In my book, I do talk about a survey that I'd done of 800 plus former Jesus people, an online service, not scientific. I don't make any claims in that regard, but it was very clear that we asked the question, how would you describe yourself politically before your experiences of being in the Jesus people and afterwards? And you do see this big move where a lot of people have described themselves as liberal in the 60s and 70s, now describe themselves when they were taking this survey in the 90s and early 2000s as conservative. It's interesting that the people who are rebelling against the culture at some point later became more conservative, like the culture they rebelled against. And they weren't conservative in the same way. There was a lot of change, a lot different. But they still kind of found themselves in a more politically conservative camp than you would have maybe thought somebody who grew up as a hippie would have. You know, people have been talking about the Asbury revival, and it seems like people really want a revival right now. You know, the Asbury revival was significantly different than what you and I have been discussing. It was only for a short period of time, and it was kind of relegated mostly to one location. I know there are a few offshoots, but mainly in one location, whereas the Jesus movement spread throughout the country. And so they're not the same thing, but they are kind of revealing that people are hungering for some sort of work of God to change our hearts, to change our neighbors' hearts, to change our world. And one of the things I love about your book, I don't think it's maybe your intention when writing it, because you were writing it as more of a historian, but I couldn't help but walk away from it thinking, well, first of all, it starts really small. I mean, you know, here is just a guy, Ted Wise, that you mentioned earlier. He's in Northern California, the area in Haight-Ashbury, talking about Jesus, and he runs into Lonnie Frisbee, who's this random dude he wouldn't know from anybody. But somehow God uses that small thing to do something really big. And, you know, I know as a historian, you probably don't want to appeal to God. There's sociological and historical factors that are all true. But as a Christian, and I know you are, you can't help but see God's hand in it somehow. And we've already talked about the messiness of the people, that God uses messy, broken people. Kind of you were talking about Samson. Well, in some sense, we're all Samson in the sense that we're all flawed, and yet somehow God uses us, and I think he gets glorified by that. And then we've referred to just the idea that it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. If revival really broke out, and if God was really bringing all kinds of people to faith, the current churches would be uncomfortable with it, just like they were in the late 60s and early 70s. And if we're not prepared to be uncomfortable, if we're not prepared to think outside the box, if we're not prepared to put people above our own property or our mission statement or whatever, then maybe we're not ready for revival as we think. Are there any other lessons like that that you would throw in, Larry? I would say that, yeah, one of the things that Aaron definitely wearing my Christian hat, God surprises. The things that he does, the people he uses, just you never know. I think there is a tendency probably amongst a lot of the aging Jesus freaks out there to you know, have a nostalgia for those times, understandably. And there was an openness to the gospel during that time that you certainly don't see these days. And if you start trying to unpack that, you know, by looking at the history and the society and culture, you can certainly come up with some reasons why that might be. I think what we tend to get sidetracked by is this expectancy to see the same thing happen again. You know, this tendency like, well, we need another Jesus people movement, you know. Well, if you begin looking at the older revivals of the church back in the day, they generally didn't tend to happen quite the same way. There was always something different going on at the time. If a new revival was to be unleashed these days in North America, it probably would not look like the Jesus people movement necessarily. It won't go be according to our expectations. And I think that's right. really good because mm-hmm. you would have gone back into the late 60s. It was obviously a time of great turmoil in our country. And you would have never thought, oh, I bet God is going to raise up a new Christian movement out of Hate ashbury in San Francisco in the summer of love. It would have never been right. what anyone have guessed. And maybe that gives us hope now, because right now there's a lot of fracturing in our country, a lot of problems. And maybe everybody go, well, there's no possible way God's going to do something now. I mean, look, it all seems stacked against us. 
And yet you never know when God's going to move, who he's going to use, and how he's going to do it. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Larry. The book is God's Forever Family. I loved it. And if you want to learn more, far more than we were able to cover in our conversation today, I think you will love the book also. Really appreciate you being with us. Thanks. Thanks so much, Keith. God bless. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 